For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel joining me over Zoom video conference. After a weekend of protests over the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis, Governor Stitt activated the National Guard for Oklahoma City and Tulsa. Ryan, what are your thoughts on this decision by the governor? Well, you know, first I want to put the focus where it belongs, and that's on Black Lives Matter and, and the Black leadership mm-hmm. in Oklahoma. You know, folks like Sheree Dickerson, Dr. Tiffany Crutcher, the thousands and thousands of Black men and women and children and their allies. You know, many in the media, you know, the media have been doing an amazing job, even though some of them have been violently targeted by the police in these protests. Oklahoma City Council members, Dickie Nice, James Cooper, Joe Beth Hammond. Also want to direct folks, ACLU of Oklahoma Twitter feed has a spot on there where People can go and support black leaders and black led organizations at this moment. I want to make one thing very clear when we're talking about the deployment of National Guard. This makes Governor Stitt the outside agitator here. He's the one escalating this and not coming to the table with real solutions. But instead, he's taking marching orders from a fascist in the White House who's doing everything he can to hasten the descent into a failed state. The time's come for real action. uh, And this is not what we need right now. Neva. Uh, Absolutely incorrect, in my opinion. I mean, first of all, 23 states uh, activated approximately 17,000 National Guard. In Oklahoma, 200 members of the Guard were activated uh, by Governor Stitt and the Department of Emergency Management, and basically to do nothing more than to assist the Oklahoma Highway Patrol as needed, basically doing things such as taking care of checkpoints, uh, uh, dealing with flow of traffic, uh, things that actually allowed the law enforcement of folks, uh, the local folks, to be free to do what was needed. So this was support um, uh, exclusively, and frankly, uh, nothing that we would not expect in any circumstance, just like the governor uh, called out the National Guard to assist with the uh, coronavirus and be able to go into nursing homes and assist with uh, what was needed to uh, uh, respond there with deep cleaning and uh, working as contract contact tracers, uh, aiding local food pantries, you name it. So to uh, su- to suggest that this is some incendiary, uh, you know, overreach uh, is absolutely untrue. The governor has made uh, statements as virtually every elected official that uh, we have constitutionally protected First Amendment freedom to pre- to peaceably protest. Uh, this is uh, this is who we are as Americans. I don't think anyone questions that. It's encouraged and allowed. What is not allowed is the violent protests or demonstrations, rioting or destroying of property here in Oklahoma or anywhere else across the nation. When we but when we escalate the militarization and what we're talking, I mean, we talk about COVID and nursing homes. Nursing homes haven't been militarized. Police departments have been militarized. It's you know, this is a step in the wrong direction. It's time to demilitarize police departments. It's time to defund police departments, reinvest that money back into communities hardest hit by policing. Imagine, reimagine public safety. And we've got to do that now because Black Lives Matter. Anything else is an endorsement of the status quo. And when we take when we I mean, we've seen in Oklahoma, uh, you know, tanks on the street, militarization on the street, helicopters in the street, military helicopters flying over the nation's capital, homes being raided in the nation's capital. When we put military out there and we increase the very problem that we're dealing with, which is a hyper-funded, hyper-militarized police department, and we're, we're only asking for greater encounters uh, and escalation, you know, the kind of violence and, and rioting and looting, um, you know, those, those things are uh, created by an escalation in militarization. That's exactly what bringing the National Guard to the table does. Solutions 
uh, are what we need. And that's to defund police departments, demilitarize police departments, reimagine public safety. You know, it's interesting when we talk about what's really needed. I think uh, I, I was reflecting back, I think it was seven years ago, the Senator Brian Crane authored a bill that would have changed the law that police officers that were terminated for using excessive force in the performance of their duties would not be reinstated by the, the unions based on arbitration, that they would have to rather appeal that termination uh, to a district judge. And it was interesting, police chiefs across Oklahoma were asking for that, uh, uh, the police unions obviously opposing that. And, and, and it was interesting that uh, regrettably, I mean, that often came down to uh, partisan lines and some of the very folks that are, that are speaking out, uh, you know, uh, the most strongly, um, you know, about, about these issues that we're dealing with today were the very folks that weren't interested in addressing a piece of legislation like this that could have gone a long way to have uh, addressed some of these measures, particularly where we talk about police officers who do need to put in be put into check if they are rogue officers or doing things that are ex excessive and uh, unacceptable. The state health department reverses course on limiting certain data over COVID-19. Attorney General Mike Hunter worked with the agency to find a way to get the information out without jeopardizing personal information. Neva, do you think this was the right move for the state? Absolutely. I think I think the attorney general moved swiftly. Um, there was really no uh, about the time the conversation started and was in the media. Uh, the attorney general came out on Wednesday and basically advised the health department that the releasing of this data didn't violate state or, or uh, federal law. Uh, as long as in, as long as individuals are not identified, which was completely understood, I think, by uh, virtually everyone. So, uh, again, this information is important uh, to be to be released. Uh, I think uh, I think we saw that in the reaction of uh, uh, people in the, the nursing home community, AARP Oklahoma coming out uh, early, criticizing the fact that this information might not be published. Uh, certainly uh, it took many of the municipalities and cities by surprise. Uh, the Stillwater mayor in particular uh, took to Twitter and uh, basically uh, uh, said uh, it took exception not being notified of any potential change in policy like this in advance. So I, I think uh, communication, as we say, is key. And I think that the attorney general was uh, uh, swift in making it very clear what uh, what can be expected and what should take place. Ryan. You know, I, I feel like the, the governor has looked for every opportunity he can to bungle the state's response to COVID-19 from the beginning. So it shouldn't surprise us that as we end, enter his phase three uh, final stage of the uh, of the governor's reopening plan, that he wouldn't find another way uh, to just unnecessarily uh, create you know gaps in information and knowledge that are critically important for healthcare officials and for municipal leaders to be able to, to continue to respond to the pandemic. And you know, even though you know, we're, we're watching you know, so many other rapidly unfolding events in our society right now, there is still a pandemic. It is still taking lives right here in Oklahoma. Uh, there are still concerns for you know, potential widespread outbreaks in places like nursing homes uh, and jails and prisons. Um, we're, we're beginning to, and without the information, it's, it's hard to know where that's happening. It's hard to know for uh, if you're a leader in the public health world trying to you know, respond and have resources available. Uh, so why the governor did this is just really uh, bizarre, uh, why, why he would decide that you know, at this moment that they were going to hit the pause button on information. And, and the attorney general's quick response here, uh, one, it's the right response, it's the right policy response, but it's also political. 
and and I think it's important for our listeners to you know, be reminded that we're we're continuing to see this um, this political fight between the Republican Attorney General and the Republican Governor, um, and you know many disagreements on important policy issues. And here, the Attorney General really forced the Governor's hand uh, and said, you know, you you've made a mistake here, and you here's the opportunity for you to reverse course, um, which ends up with good policy. But it also, I think. Uh, gives the attorney general another win in his political column against Governor Stitt uh, in what's been a very long and protracted fight between the two of them uh, over the course of 2020. A petition to create a ballot measure on redistricting gets the approval from the state Supreme Court, but the future of state question 810 to create an independent redistricting commission remains in doubt because of COVID-19. Ryan, what's going on with this? Well, you know, the uh, the Supreme Court, there were two, there were a couple of questions before the Supreme Court. If, if we remember back, uh, the first iteration of 810 had been uh, kicked out by the Supreme Court for failure of its gist, you know, which is basically the, the language uh, that voters would look at uh, to, you know, to understand, you know, what what it is that they're voting on. Uh, the Supreme Court said that it wasn't adequate. Um, the drafters, Andy Moore, uh, who's a, a good friend of mine and uh, has been working very hard on this. They went back to the drawing board, came up with some new language, submitted it. It was challenged again. Um, and these challenges here that we got to realize, you know, the, the folks challenging this, they're not challenging this in good faith. They're not out there acting as champions for the voters and saying, oh, we've got to protect the voters' interest here. They're trying to delay. And that's exactly what they've done. Uh, they've delayed and they've delayed and they've delayed. And now we're at a spot where even if the Secretary of State were to say, start collecting signatures, uh, uh, Andy Moore and the 810 campaign are in a difficult position of saying, well, you know, how do we do that? You know, is there a way to do it safely to protect signature collectors? Is there a way to do it safely to protect the people that would be signing it? And could we do it in time uh, to get it on a November ballot? That seems very unlikely at the moment. Um, you know, what would really be helpful would be if the Secretary of State and the governor would indefinitely continue uh, the current prohibition on signature collecting, because you can't collect signatures right now. They need to indefinitely continue that uh, prohibition, maybe into the fall, winter, or even early 2020, uh, to give proponents of 810 the opportunity to go out and have a responsible and effective signature collection campaign. Neva. Well, I think uh, I think this process, when we when we look at what's going on, I mean, to me, the bottom line is, just as Ryan said, time is of the essence. Uh, it, the reality is it looks very difficult that anything is going to take place that would allow for a process to move forward with signature signature collection or anything that would allow for ultimately something to be on the November ballot. So, um, it, but the bigger issue to me, I mean, on this redistricting petition is that, as we've talked about, uh, uh, you know, months ago when it first came up, is that redistricting is currently done, done by the Oklahoma legislature. It is a process that is fair. It's a process that allows for significant input by the public as well as elected officials and everyone across the board. Uh, this is something that's done in all in all states uh, as they go through the redistricting process. We've seen redistricting challenges go to court. We've seen them be upheld. Uh, so I think that we have processes in place, quite frankly, that allow for a, a good redistricting process and, and plan to take place. And I think what we will see is that unquestionably, if and when this type of measure goes to the ballot, I think there will be a strong no campaign against this type of effort to create an in, what, what is described as an independent uh, redistricting 
redistricting commission, but anyone has to believe that no matter what the composition of it is, it has a political dimension to it by virtue of the very people that ultimately be, would be part of that commission if it existed. One of the interesting policy points of 810 that I think uh, is, is kind of buried in there, but it's important, and we talk a lot about criminal justice reform right now, when somebody is incarcerated right now and they're removed from their community, that political power is taken out of their community and put in the community that has the prison that they're, uh, that they're, uh, that they're incarcerated in. And so what 810 would do is it would say that you still are counted uh, for census purposes, um, in, uh, and, and for redistricting purposes in the community in which you came, uh, not in the community in which you're incarcerated. That's a, that's a huge uh, policy shift. So if the legislature wants to do this on their own, they also need to include that, uh, that reform in whatever they're doing if they want to undermine 810 or, or say that they can do this without the necessity of 810. Supporters of a Medicaid expansion state question are ramping up pressure. The Yes on 802 folks have launched an ad blitz and have begun touring towns across the Sooner State ahead of the June 30th vote. Neva, do you anticipate any televised or outward opposition to this? Well, at this point, there is no indication that there's going to be a real strong opposition campaign. And as we've seen almost from the outset of this group uh, organizing, they are incredibly... uh, fine-tuned. Uh, they've got a, uh, a a group that are funding it at a level that allows for a very aggressive statewide campaign. The polling continues to indicate the polling continues to indicate that uh, uh, it is uh, would overwhelmingly meet uh, with approval if the if the election were held today. Now we still have some time to go, but as we look at this, uh, th- this is really about. Uh, Oklahomans deciding health care and ultimately whether this becomes part of the state constitution, which is what uh, this state question will allow. Right. Yeah. And if you if you look at these ads, I mean, there, there's some incredibly uh, powerful ads that underscore the need for Medicaid expansion in Oklahoma. Oklahoma, one of 14 states that hasn't expanded Medicaid. Uh, one of the ads really focuses on you know the fact that we're sending our tax dollars right here in Oklahoma to the federal government to be dispersed in uh, almost every other state in the union but our own uh, for purposes of investment in healthcare. And then another you know touches on the closure of rural hospitals and uh, you you have a, a woman going into a labor and they're they're driving around trying to find uh, a hospital in rural Oklahoma and they're closed. And as as somebody who uh, is you know, born and raised and spent uh, the vast majority of my life in rural Oklahoma and, and still uh, you know, consider myself a rural Oklahoman at heart. You know, that's that's a real concern. You know, these these uh, you know, just just because you live in rural Oklahoma doesn't mean that you should have uh, not just substandard health care, but no access to health care. And without Medicaid expansion, what we're going to see is continued closure uh, of, of rural hospitals. And, um, you know, these two ads, I think, are very important uh, in, in driving that message home. I, I agree with Neva, uh, I haven't I haven't seen any uh, signals that there's going to be an opposition out there, and an opposition would be really hard uh, at this moment. You know, the the governor, the real political opposition, I think, would have had to have something to rally behind, and the governor abandoned that this legislative session. He was moving forward with his own Medicaid expansion alternative, uh, and even at the very end of the legislation, and, and one of the most bizarre moves of the 2020 legislative session, which is saying a whole lot. Uh, he vetoed his own Medicaid expansion funding mechanism, uh, which all but left 802 is the only vehicle to expand Medicaid in Oklahoma. So 
it's it's really come down to the people of Oklahoma of uh, expand or not expand. Yeah, Neva, uh, and that's the question. And, uh, you know, like Neva said, you know, the polling seems to indicate that Oklahomans you know, want to bring these federal dollars home and invest them in Oklahoma's health care. Right, Neva, again, it appears to be like a repeat of two years ago when uh, medical marijuana was going to be on the ballot and the lawmakers said, oh, don't worry, we'll, we'll have we'll fix something in this. So you won't have to vote for that. Same thing. They, they said, oh, don't worry, we'll fix something in the interim, but never got around, not really got around to it because everything kind of fell apart. That's right. And now we have this the situation as as Ryan just described, where if state question eight oh two passes, it will require uh, the legislative leaders and the governor to come up with a funding source because there's nothing in place when the governor vetoed the very funding mechanism that he had asked for, uh, leaving the leaving really everyone scratching their heads, uh, just as uh, it, Ryan described it as bizarre. I mean, many folks really felt like what this left was uh, the plan in limbo. So we'll have a situation where uh, how will the state come up with the expected $150 million a year in the budget uh, that will match the uh, uh, their 10% to the federal dollars that would come in from Medicaid expansion? So there's a lot of things looming on the horizon for lawmakers to deal with after June 30th that this passes. And very quickly, Ryan, how would the state come up with that kind of money? Well, I mean, there were, you know, the, the hospital fee uh, it was was one way. I mean, I think that that was expected to generate between 150 and $200 million. It was a, uh, it was a small hospital fee that I think even hospitals, for the most part, were willing to pay uh, because they recognized that what it meant was an investment in healthcare. Um, that means, you know, you know, jobs in the healthcare sector. That means that, uh, and then I think more importantly, access to reliable, quality healthcare for people all over Oklahoma and all 77 counties. So, I mean, there there are opportunities to to generate this money, and it's a it's just a heck of a deal. I mean, we we spend 150 million dollars and we get a billion in return. I mean, it's 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 hard to say no to that. Speaking of bringing in lots of money, uh, the Oklahoma medical marijuana industry just keeps on breaking records for the fourth month in a row of sales increase with April coming in at nearly $74 million. Ryan, why do you think sales are spiking like this? Well, I mean, I, I can I, I, now I can't account for all 74 million of that money myself, <laughs> but you know, some of those tax dollars are out of my pocket and, uh, and I, I'm grateful for it. Uh, I'm grateful to be able to to walk into a medical marijuana dispensary and and you know legally purchase a product and and then use my tax dollars to support the administration of that system um, and so you know I, I think that you know Oklahomans have have continued to recognize uh, as as we see stigma go away uh, and more and more people are are willing to say well hey wait a second I know so and so and and they've done this and you know they're not they're not this you know terrible person that the uh, that the war on drugs has told us, you know, marijuana turns people into. No reformers. Um, and so, as, as stigma goes away, and as marketing gets better, as the products get better, um, I think we're going to see more and more Oklahomans. This is an upward, upward, uh, upward trend that uh, that we're experiencing, and I think that it doesn't plateau uh, because even though we could probably see medical sales plateau, I think that we're whether it's through an initiative petition or through legislative action or some combination of the two. You know, we're probably a year or two away in Oklahoma from you know some full adult use uh, um, uh, system that would you know really begin to generate revenue because it's important for our listeners to understand revenue from medical marijuana goes to the administration of medical marijuana. It's medic. It's as medicine. We're not meant to generate revenue here to put into education or healthcare or other things like that. It's meant to administer the system and give patients their medicine. Adult use is the thing that other states where we've seen tens of millions of dollars coming in revenue that can be invested in education. 
that's where that money comes from. Uh, and I think that we're probably, like I said, a year or two away from that. Neva. You know, I think it's fascinating when we look at these numbers, we talk about record sales, we say that uh, that um, the, the sharp rise does coincide with the COVID-19 pandemic. But when we say that $74 million was spent by customers last month or in April on medical marijuana in the state of Oklahoma, that's a fairly staggering number. So, um to, uh, uh, to to look at this from the perspective of do we have do we have this uh, kind of this uh, push for full adult use as you describe Ryan I mean we basically if this is a full adult use right now I don't know what is I mean the only question that uh, that that you're pointing out is in terms of where the dollars would be allocated I mean whether it's uh, uh, through the medical marijuana authority or whether it would be straight to the to the state budget or whatever that is, that's a whole nother policy discussion, a whole nother uh, issue uh, that the voters may indeed get to uh, decide at some point. But to look at these numbers and to uh, uh, to see where we are today and to think, I mean, if there's uh, if this is the growth industry that we've just kind of scratched the tip of the iceberg, what does that really mean in terms of uh, um, uh, marijuana use uh, in Oklahoma uh, in the future? And what are the health concerns and the other issues long term that come from this that I think become those additional issues that lawmakers are going to have to infuse into the conversation when they discuss these policy matters. And at what point, Ryan, do we start thinking about corrections reform when it comes to marijuana use? Because uh, there are still people in our jails right now that have that are in jail because of med- or, or because of marijuana, obviously not because of medical marijuana. Well, no, even for medical marijuana. I mean, we have folks that have that are licensed medical marijuana patients in Oklahoma that nevertheless using their medicine is a violation of a uh, uh, deferred prosecution or, or something or, or deferred sentence. And they're being revoked to jail and prison. I mean, we're seeing that right now. That's happening in Oklahoma. So um, that is the biggest thing that has to happen here. When we talk about marijuana reform, it can't just be about an industry and growing an industry. Uh, it's got to be about uh, remedying the generations uh, of and decades of a broken war on drugs that's put thousands and thousands and thousands of people in jails and prisons that are con- it's continuing to do that. And I agree with Neva. We do have one of the most liberal medical marijuana programs in the nation, but there are still barriers to access there. Um, and we are still putting a lot of folks in particular you know, uh, which is, I think, you know, very important for this moment right now, a lot of black Oklahomans uh, in criminal jeopardy. Um, uh, and, you know, that's we for just no reason whatsoever, you know, because they and so we, we've got to focus on reforms that aren't just about generating revenue, that aren't just about building an industry, uh, but are also about, you know, making sure that we are uh, fixing the criminal justice problems that we've created over the last many decades. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.